When trying to reason with faithful believers, especially religious extremists like creationists, we keep hearing the same old arguments over and over and over again, even though we know they've already been shown to be false, fraudulent, and or fallacious probably by everyone who's ever seen them. If you keep it up, you'll suspect that those who keep repeating these must surely know by now that all of these points have already been refuted a thousand times. I'm R.N. Ra, and this is The Pratt List. There's an old Chinese story about a Naga goddess, Nu Kwa. She created the first people out of clay. On the other side of the Pacific, Native Americans said that coyote created the mountains and the rivers and made the fish therein. Of course, in the Middle East, the fabled creator was the Jewish volcano god known as Jehovah, though there were a few other even older creator gods too. Believers never wonder what these gods were doing before there was a world to do things in, or where they came from, even though they all apparently came from the land of pure imagination. Initially, the religious position was that the earth was a flat disk divided into four quadrants, erected on pillars or columns like a map spread out on a table, and that it was covered by a giant crystal dome with windows in it because these primitive people thought that space was full of water and that these windows are where the rain came from. It was a common belief across Asia with different religions positing that whichever god might cover the dome of the sky, stretching out the heavens over the firmament like a tent, and sometimes with the stars sewn into the fabric of the veil of night. But in the Jewish tradition, the stars were contained within the expanse of this dome, along with the sun and the moon and all the other planets, which of course were all much, much smaller than the earth and even smaller than the moon. They didn't know that the earth was just another planet and they didn't know that the sun was one of the stars. They thought that the stars were tiny little things that had thinking minds and personalities because that's the way the Bible describes them. Not kidding. And this wasn't just in ancient times either. I've actually met people like this. There's an awful lot of people today who still believe in this model or another similar one without a firmament where the sun and the moon and all the other planets are still smaller than the earth and orbit around it. They also believe that the earth is the first thing in the universe, the biggest thing in the universe, and of course the center of the universe. And even if they don't hold to such an extreme view, it is alarming how many religious people don't believe in outer space but do believe that the earth is flat. And there are dedicated religious apologists who accept that the world is round, but still believe that the sun orbits the earth. There are also some who accept that the earth orbits the sun, but think that our solar system is the center of the universe and that everything literally revolves around us. Then we discovered the Big Bang. Astronomers saw that other galaxies were moving away from us fast enough to be redshifted in spectroscopy, such that it appears that the universe is expanding or inflating. If you extrapolate backwards, then everything was closer together in the past, culminating in, or rather originating in, a single point where everything, and I mean everything, flew apart from there. Matter, energy, universal forces, natural laws, and even empty space and time began at that point. So anyone asking about the state of the universe before it existed, or what happened before the beginning of time, obviously doesn't understand the question they're asking. It's like trying to travel to a point south of the South Pole. Religious extremists delight in saying that scientists have proven that the universe had a beginning and they use that argument against the Big Bang, but the Big Bang is our proof that the universe had a beginning. Cosmologists, cosmogonists, and astrophysicists tried to work out what was happening and they produced a model in which everything in the universe rapidly erupted from a small, hot, dense state roughly 13.7 billion years ago. This discovery was initially ridiculed as a Big Bang, but the pejorative name calling stuck and that's what we call it now. Understand that a goal without a deadline is just a dream, 
or a prophecy. So any proposed explanation has to have two things. It has to meet certain predictions that should only happen if we're on the right track, and there has to be some way to prove it wrong if we're not. And no one's ever found any data to contradict the Big Bang. So they worked out that if this hypothesis is correct, there should be a particular type of cosmic microwave background radiation to indicate that, and such was actually discovered to exist. It was a Nobel Prize winning discovery in the 1970s, and it implies that the universe really is expanding, and apparently has been since the literal beginning, beginning of time. Of time. Now, there's some talk of a singularity being a favorite component of that explanation, but physicists aren't really entirely certain about that. What they tell me is that they don't know anything prior to 10 to the negative 43rd seconds after the Big Bang, if in fact that is a fair description of what that is. But they say they actually know everything after that in spectacular detail. So we have only a very small window of the tiniest fraction of a second in which to speculate. Where did it all come from? There are many fallacious appeals to ridicule of what we actually know, one of them being that scientists are supposed to think that complex order, including life, was somehow created by an explosion. But no scientist believes that. Besides, the Big Bang wasn't really an explosion in the same sense that nuclear fusion isn't really the same thing as a fire, and it happened nine billion years before the accretion of the Earth, so it couldn't have anything to do with the beginning of life, either. Another creationist distortion is that the Big Bang is somehow part of evolution and that evolution requires something coming from nothing. By evolution, they mean all scientific explanations that contradict their favorite fables, so nearly every field of science. But again, we didn't come from nothing, and no scientist believes that we ever came from absolutely nothing. The Big Bang is not something from nothing. Even when cosmologists talk about a universe from essentially nothing, they don't mean an absolute philosophical nothing. In fact, they don't think that an absolute nothing is even possible, because every time they try to create a perfect vacuum, they notice quantum fluctuations of subatomic particles popping in and out of existence where there shouldn't be anything. Otherwise, logically, we can't get something from nothing, right? So something must be eternal without a beginning, and it could be the matter and energy of this universe. Because we know from the theory of relativity that gravity bends the fabric of space-time, and extreme gravity punches a hole in it. That's what black holes were thought to be. So imagine we have all the gravity of the entire cosmos compressed into a single point. That could cause a rift in the time-space continuum. And maybe that could happen from either side of the boundaries of this universe, which means that all the matter and energy, which are interchangeable one from the other, could have entered this universe from a source of the multiverse, such that myriad universes could be popping in and out of existence like bubbles in the bottom of a saucepan coming to boil, and we'd never know about these other ones because we're trapped within this one. There's no reason why the multiverse shouldn't be eternal, but in a sense, this universe could be also, at least the energetic matter in it, because another property of excessive gravity is that it slows down time. So again, if you had the combined gravity of all the matter in the universe compressed into a singularity, if you will, it would slow time down to a stop. So imagine an asymptote on a Cartesian coordinate system, which slows down time as you move backward through time toward the Big Bang, such that one second stretches out to equal infinity when t equals zero. That would mean that although the expansion of the universe had a beginning, the material energy within it is eternal. It was literally always here. It could also be that our universe changes states, that the one we're in where entropy increases was preceded by an earlier version where entropy decreases and where energy is cumulative, where everything came together instead of flying apart until it reached a pinnacle where it reversed the physical laws to begin this alternate subsequent universe where everything slows down and gets colder instead. 
But even if we were to imagine that the matter of energetic material energy had to come from somewhere beyond the universe, outside of space and time, then remember that time is a fourth dimension, but it's only a temporal dimension. It could be that the Big Bang represents a fourth spatial dimension moving into and thus inflating three-dimensional space the same way a three-dimensional object appears to appear out of nothing when trying to move through a two-dimensional plane. It would look to us like something coming from nothing, even though it really came from somewhere else before. And what could be the catalyst for all this, the first mover that the Wanda believers want to imagine? Well, it could be the random motions of supercosmic membranes or who knows what else. Why is the interior of our universe shaped like this? There is no indication that any intelligent agent even could have been involved in any of this. And remember that the sacred fables don't have a lot of credibility. Being absolutely wrong about absolutely everything they claim that can be tested. So I would say that any of these other ideas are at least equally valid to the religious idea, except that we know that a god isn't possible at all. And the important thing is that this is all just speculation, including God. If there is no way to test any hypothesis to show which one has more or less credence than another, and if there's no way to eliminate which ones are completely wrong, then it wouldn't matter what explanations we come up with. Even if you're right, if there's no way to show that, to know that with no evidence to back it and no way to verify or falsify it, then it's effectively meaningless and doesn't warrant serious consideration. So where did everything come from? No one knows. Certainly not you and you've no reason to pretend that you do, or to pretend that you know someone who does, because you don't. I've read your holy books, and they reveal that your God doesn't know it either. He doesn't even know where the sun came from, or what it is, or what the moon is. Everything the Bible says about the earth in relation to the rest of the cosmos is laughably, embarrassingly wrong, and has been known to be wrong for thousands of years. The more we know, the more it shows that God doesn't know any more than the ignorant, primitive, superstitious savages pretending to speak for him back in the Bronze Age when everyone thought the world was flat and no one yet knew anything that was actually true. So anytime believers hear that you can't explain the origin of life, the universe, and everything, they think that it means that it must have been this dog or snake girl or, more commonly, some dream of genie, when in fact all these ideas are equally absurd and none of them even could be the right answer. Whatever the reality is, it is surely far more abstruse and complicated than these creatures of the id. Gods and magic are the simplest and most infantile excuses men have ever invented to explain things they obviously didn't and still don't even want to understand. Did you just say that evolution is just a theory, as if it's only a theory and not also a fact? As if to imply that the foundation of modern biology is somehow uncertain? As if no one knows for sure or can prove that I'm wrong so I can still believe whatever I want? <laughs> no, 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 no. It's not like that at all. I've covered this before. It's one of the foundational falsehoods of creationism. But since this is the Pratt list of points refuted a thousand times, then it bears repeating. There's a difference between a scientific theory and a mathematic theory, and both are different from the colloquial notion that a theory is just a blind guess or empty, baseless speculation like religion is. A scientific theory is a body of knowledge that begins with hypothesis, which could be interpreted as a guess, but one that is testable, meaning experiments can be devised wherein that hypothesis can either be verified or falsified. Those are the minimal requirements, or it doesn't even count as a hypothesis, because there has to be some way to show whether it is supported or should be discarded. Those are the only choices. So notice the obvious reason why religious beliefs will never submit to that, because faith doesn't want to figure out how things really are. Faith wants to make believe something else instead, regardless of what the truth is. A scientific theory also has to be based on and explain factual observations of natural phenomena, which is another thing religion doesn't and can't do. For one thing, nothing that religions believe is ever observed. Instead, they're all made up. 
Likewise, saying God did it doesn't explain how anything happened or why things are the way they are. You can call it a miracle, but that doesn't explain anything, and it isn't true either. You can't call it truth unless you can show that it is true. Understand that the truth is what the facts are, and the unsupported assertions have no more validity than the claims that have been proven wrong. So any facts or knowledge you cite better be objectively demonstrable, or else you're making things up and talking out of your ass. If you can't show it, you don't know it. And if you can't show the truth of it, you can't say there is any truth to it. If you can't give us a reason to believe you, we have no reason to believe you, which is a pretty good reason not to. It's not like a theory could be proven and then become a law, either. And natural laws are just the summary statements or equations men devise trying to understand what they've observed. Theories are higher than laws. A scientific theory is a verifiably accurate explanation with practical application encompassing a body of facts, natural laws, and other associated hypotheses within that particular field of study. Intelligent design isn't a competing theory, either. Creationism meets exactly none of the criteria required of a scientific theory. It isn't even a hypothesis because it can't be tested and it doesn't have any possible potential reality to it either. It is literally no more than a delusion, a fixed false belief that will not change despite evidence to the contrary. The criteria required of a theory has been refined in modern times. It's much more strict now, with the standards much higher. That's why no scientific theory has been disproved in more than a century, because nowadays hypotheses kinda have to be proved already before they can graduate to the level of theory. Now let me explain. There is a rule that theories can only be disproved, that they can never be proven in the positive sense, no matter how certainly true they obviously are. That's why evolution is still a theory, because no one has been able to disprove it the way we've already disproved so many of the claims of creationism. Theory is the highest level of confidence science can achieve. It's as close to proven as anything can be, if one applies the mathematic definition of proof, but that's not the one creationists use, so it's not the one I'll use when explaining it to them. Every modern scientific theory is a hypothesis that has been effectively proven, at least in a colloquial sense, by having profound explanative power, where all new information is concordant with it by being consistently supported by all available evidence without contradiction and having already withstood prolonged, substantial battery of tests and critical analysis in peer review. If we're using the terms applicable in a court of law, then evolution has been proven by an overwhelming preponderance of evidence beyond reasonable doubt. The same goes for other scientific theories, too. Einstein's theory of relativity, for example, was effectively proven in the same sense, both with the observation of a solar eclipse warping light beams in 1919, and again with the discovery of gravity waves a century later. The National Academy of Science declares that evolution is both a fact and a theory, because every modern scientific theory both is and explains established fact, like the theory of gravity, relativity, tectonic plate theory, atomic theory, oxygen theory, cell theory, and the germ theory of disease. We know that cells are the basis of living organisms, that diseases are caused by germs, and that all matter is made of atoms. These are all facts, as well as theories. If you've ever said this to anyone before, surely they've corrected such a glaring error, and you must have known since then that you're not being honest now. So when you say that evolution is just a theory, we hear you admitting that it is the only theory of biodiversity there ever was, and that it is just the best supported, most evidently credible, factually accurate, pragmatic, and truthful explanation there is for the origin of species. Arguing science versus religion can be like repeating one of Abbott and Costello's old routines, because religious extremists use a different lexicon than rational academics do. We're saying the same words, but with different meanings, and they're equivocating multiple meanings, all of which may be wrong. 
So we just talk past each other as if neither understands why the other doesn't get it. Now some of this is by design to maintain a misunderstanding necessary to preserve a pretend position. They don't want to know what it is because they want to believe what it isn't. Now, fundamentalists want a fundamental division and distinction between worldviews, where everything boils down to whether there's a God or not. That's their whole everything, and they can't seem to get past that. They have a worldview where their myth of miraculous creation accounts for life, the universe, and everything, and they act as if there's only two sides to it, to believe in their Bible literally or to be opposed to it. In a false dichotomy where there are no other religions to consider and where every explanation must either be natural or mystical, they see evolution as a competing worldview, which, like their own, they think is supposed to encompass the origin of life, the universe, and everything. So the first and often biggest hurdle that I have to overcome when trying to explain evolution to creationists is getting over their stubbornly defended distortion of what evolution is and what it isn't. Darwin's book on the origin of species didn't mean an origin out of nothing. New species develop out of prior species. His explanation of evolution is a theory of biodiversity, meaning how a single basal population diversifies into two and then four, eight, 16, and so on, with some lineages thinning into extinction while others proliferate and dominate. That's where natural selection comes in. It's population mechanics acting on varying allele frequencies among reproductive populations, leading to usually subtle changes in the morphological or physiological composition of descendant subsets in a dynamic environment. When compiled over successive generations, these accumulated alterations can expand biodiversity when continuing variation between genetically isolated groups eventually lead to one or more descendant branches increasingly distinct from their ancestors or cousins. Or to put it much more simply and succinctly, we could summarize evolution as descent with inherent genetic modification. That means we're not talking about the evolution of planets that aren't alive or chemicals that don't have genetics. Evolution has absolutely nothing to do with the origin of the universe. If the Big Bang Theory were disproven tomorrow, evolution would still be a verifiably accurate and inescapable fact of population genetics. Likewise, it doesn't matter how life began, either. Even if we never found out what catalyst or conditions could have started those dominoes falling, the fact is they're still falling, and that is beyond dispute. But, as it turns out, we have learned quite a lot about that now. We still don't know everything, but it's not the mystery it used to be. Before evolution can begin, there has to be a genetic organism to evolve from. So the first organisms did not evolve out of living components. We're not talking about evolution now, instead we're talking about abiogenesis, an overlapping array of completely different chemical processes affecting or contributing to different stages of that development all the way from replicative polymers to recognizable cells. Abiogenesis differs from evolution in that there's no heritage, since most of the assembled modifications were acquired or absorbed horizontally across a broad swath of primordial components at a time when there was as yet no discernible ancestor-descendant relationships. We're not talking about lightning striking a mud puddle either, nothing so absurdly simple as that. The formation of primal organisms is at least as complex as the earliest forms of life itself. Of course, the earliest pioneers in science didn't understand any of that. They were very simple-minded and superstitious in the 1600s. They didn't even know about oxygen yet, so how could they have understood anything about biochemistry? Back then, even educated men commonly believed in vitalism, the idea that all life, plants, animals, everything, was animated by a sort of life force, and that when anything died, this 
evanescent essence of existence would emanate from it, causing fermentation and putrefaction, which is why any once living matter, such as organic refuse, old meat, feces, always smelled bad for a while, at least until all the vital force was completely evaporated. Because it wasn't just the physical mass that was rotting. They thought that the essence of the life once in it was going bad too. So they imagined that as this decaying, departing spirit ebbed out, that it would supernaturally re-solidify, albeit in a diminished and degenerate form. They thought it would spontaneously generate mold, maggots, or mice. This was, of course, soon disproved in a series of experiments by a number of scientists, including Louis Pasteur, who used methodological naturalism to disprove a supernatural claim. Yet, he is incorrectly cited as having disproved abiogenesis. This leads to one of the most annoying misunderstandings of falsely associated terms, where every religious extremist thinks that abiogenesis is spontaneous generation, because even the dictionaries have these confused and will not make corrections even when you provide the proof. I know, because I've contacted a few of them myself with documents to show, but of course was ignored. So. I made a video explaining abiogenesis and another one describing spontaneous generation, both intended for middle school biology lessons. Uh, links in the description. Believers like to cite the law of biogenesis, which is the idea that life only comes from life, which they attribute to Louis Pasteur. But he got the idea from Rudolf Virchow, the father of cell biology. He was also the guy who first proposed abiogenesis in 1855, though that name was first coined by Thomas Huxley in 1870. Initially, Virchow said that all cells arise from other cells. He also said that all diseased cells must come from other diseased cells, but he had to admit that there had to be a first cell in each infected body that became diseased from a previously healthy cell. Thus, logically, there must also be a first living cell that came from what Virchow described as a prior matrix. The proposition being that genetic and metabolic cells must have developed through an intricate sequence of increasingly complex chemical constructs, each having been naturally enhanced by particular environmental and constituent conditions, which we now know quite a lot about. There has never been any natural law against this. Abiogenesis is the current, valid, and well-supported science of biochemistry, not the 19th century speculation of supernatural silliness that was spontaneous generation. Those who are determined to make believe in the fable that God created every kind of animal on the same day often point to the Cambrian explosion as if that were scientific proof that every animal of Phyla appeared all at once, suddenly and separately, with no evident evolutionary ancestry. Such believers want to imagine, or at least give you the impression, that the, all the mammals and birds and reptiles that we see today appeared at the same time as dinosaurs and trilobites and everything else some 6,000 years ago. And they insist that all the world's best educated expert specialists in geology and paleontology have somehow unanimously misunderstood every type of sedimentation and stratification as well as every method of radiometric dating. As if everything we can confirm that we actually do know to be true about the geologic column is only an illusion created by a global flood. A flood that we know couldn't have happened and that we can conclusively show definitely did not happen. This is something we know for certain. I have a playlist of videos showing how several different avenues of science have independently disproved the global flood myth of Noah's Ark, so we're not talking about that today, nor the many ways that we can prove that the Earth really is billions of years old. Instead, we're only talking about what the Cambrian explosion really is as opposed to what religious extremist science denialists want to pretend that it is. 
The first thing that the Cambrian explosion really isn't is an explosion. Having occurred in four series or 10 stages over a geologic period of more than 50 million years, beginning roughly 541 million years ago. Before radiometric dating told us just how long ago that was, the Cambrian period was given that name in the 1830s by pioneer geologist Adam Sedgwick, who named it after the Welsh country that was then known as Cambria. The Cambrian period was the first of a half dozen geologic periods that make up the Paleozoic era, which was followed by the Mesozoic era of the dinosaurs and then the Cenozoic era of mammals in which we live. Collectively, all these eras make up the Phanerozoic Eon, being that part of Earth's history in which there was an abundance of complex multicellular organisms. Geologic history prior to that is known as the Proterozoic Era, which is much more commonly or simply referred to as the Precambrian, being the time of Proterozoans, before the influx and radiation or diversification of macroscopic life forms. Understand that for more than 80% of the history of life on Earth, there were only single-celled microbes some of which cranking out oxygen as a waste product and turning our skies blue. The uh, influx of oxygen also had an effect on the evolution at the beginning of the Cambrian as well. And once these organisms were multicellular, there was an unprecedented variety of incidental designs that appeared very quickly, as nature seemed to blindly experiment with every configuration that might work. And some of those were failed experiments, which is why so many of the things know, that we know from that time have no living descendants now. Every geologic period is recognized as containing fossils that are unique to that strata, being multiple collections of species that are found only there and never in any other layer, regardless where in the world they're found. Thus, there are some fossils of Cambrian crustaceans that we recognize as similar to what still exists today, but most animals from back then were already extinct before the next period began, and they're so alien to us now that it's difficult to determine what they even are, or rather, were. Now, as jungles become deserts or plains become forests, our constantly changing environment means that erosion will be differential. Some of the layers of the geologic column will be more severely eroded in some regions, being worn thin or wiped away before the ever-dynamic environment changes again to allow sedimentation to resume in that area. There are only a few places where the entire geologic column can be found intact and in one location. Most of the time, the layers will be missing in different places at different levels, but the order that they're in remains constant all over the world. And that's how we know that the geologic column is real and significant evidence for the evolution of life. By the 1960s, some people began to refer to the Cambrian period as an explosion in reference to a relatively sudden proliferation of different animal phyla erupting from what had historically been seen as a virtual void. Because until that time, no fossils had yet been found before or below Cambrian strata. In the time of Sedgwick and Darwin, that was a mystery and it remained a mystery until recent decades, even within my lifetime. Now, why is that? First of all, fossilization is rare. Most of the animals that have ever lived did not end up as fossils. That only happens under specific circumstances, and good preservation requires even more particular conditions. So there are hundreds of species representing tens of thousands of individuals each, at the very least, that we might only know about from a fraction of a single fragmented skeleton. If you find only one unique individual bone, that must mean that there's a skeleton attached to it, right? And if we have a skeleton at all, there should be more than one because it's more likely than there being just one of anything. Another reason this is rare is because larger animals fossilize easier than smaller ones. And we know that the earliest animals were quite small indeed, even microscopic. I've found microfossils in a microscope just from a handful of dirt that I picked up myself. Uh, 
but they were all of organisms that had shells or bones, which again did not evidently exist prior to the Cambrian period. The vast majority of fossils are of shells or exoskeletons, and bones appeared in the fossil record later on. It is possible to find fossils of soft bodies, but the conditions required for that are very particular, and it is even less likely that we'd find something like that that is not already covered in concrete or destroyed by previous people with no understanding of what they had in their hands. I've seen troughs of thousands of unidentified fossils, fragments too small to tell what they are. Who knows how many fascinating species have already been discovered but never recognized. And what we know about evolution tells us that we shouldn't expect to find much of anything prior to the evolution of bones or shells, and that whatever we do find will be trace fossils like tracks or burrows that filled in with later sediments, which we do have, by the way. Or there's those other situations, so be those very rare instances where even soft parts of microbes would still be identifiable. And just because they're rare doesn't mean they don't exist, and I'm not making excuses for things we haven't yet detected, because we have, in fact, already found exactly what we expected to find before, meaning below, Cambrian strata. Because of a combination of vastly improved understanding and continuously advancing technology, as well as the discovery of a number of treasure troves of unique fossilization events in remote locations around the world, we've learned more about paleontology just in the last couple of decades than we had in the last couple centuries prior. In fact, the earliest microfossils found so far are bacteria from 3.8 billion years ago and fossil protists that date back to just over a billion years old. So biologists estimate that it took a couple billion years just to get from prokaryotes to eukaryotes and then another billion years or so after that to get to multicellular life. And what we know about phylogenetic taxonomy, primarily from comparative genomic orthologs and indicates that during the latter billion years, the first eukaryotes in our lineage prompted a symbiotic relationship with mitochondrial bacteria and then advanced through the taxonomic ranks of unicons, opisticons, holozoans, philozoans, and apoikozoans, continuing through what we would now refer to as stem cells before becoming multicellular metazoans. And that's just to qualify as animals. Then, as multicellular organisms, they picked up the pace profoundly, continuing on to eventually become bilaterally symmetrical triploblastic deuterostomes. And we have fossils confirming that all of this happened before the Cambrian period had even begun. It turns out that the Cambrian was preceded by the Ediacaran period, previously known as the Vendian. Therein, paleontologists have finally found some of the evolutionary ancestors of the few Cambrian fauna that represent almost everything we still have alive today. And of course, the most primitive animals are the earliest to arrive, with sponges dating back to 580 million years, perhaps older. Then, more recently, we see precursors of modern mollusks and soft-bodied forerunners of armored chelicerates like trilobites and scorpions. So it's not true that every phyla emerged in the Cambrian, because bryozoans, like we have today, didn't appear until after that period. And trilobozoans and proarticulates were both ediacaran phyla that not only appeared before the Cambrian, they were already extinct before the Cambrian too, a fact which serves as evidence against an intelligent designer, or at least against an infallible or omniscient one. Importantly, we know that there were no primates or familiar fauna like horses or elephants 100 million years ago. There were no mammals at all 200 million years ago, nor birds either. And there were no dinosaurs 300 million years ago, and no terrestrial vertebrates of any kind 400 million years ago. 500 million years ago, there weren't even vertebrates with actual bones yet. The earliest and most primitive fish evidently didn't exist until at least 10 million years into the Cambrian. So it seems that our lineage living through that time somehow never noticed that so-called explosion. Mm -hmm.